Well, good afternoon, everybody. I think we're going to go ahead and start. We actually had time in between the end of the 11 a.m. service and now, and we're here, and we're eating, we're ready to go. Let's learn together. So this is, a, a, thank you for coming. This is a great opportunity for us who have been and those who have not been to benefit from this great conference. Whenever I've gone to a big youth conference or whatever, I'm with other leaders, we often split up and we go different places and learn different things and we get back together and we get the benefit of so many other things. So this is what this is about today. It's always fun to hear how we learn in this uh, great conference together. We've been partnering with the Santa Barbara Mission Conference for, as soon as I started that sentence, I thought I'm not going to know the answer when I get to the end, but well over five years. Partnering as in money and uh, leadership. Uh, Ben Williams from our own church represents us there on the council and then uh, I go in and with some advisory stuff and uh, we we really have been happy to partner with the presbytery over the years and other churches are starting to join and really become multi-denominational and we're grateful for that we'd love to see that grow so uh, I'm going to stop talking and pray for us and then uh, we're Brent's going to start us off by showing us a, a recap video so that we can really feel like we were there All right, let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for ways that we can learn. We want to be lifelong learners, and we want to grow more in an understanding of of who you are in our community, who you are in our world. And we're thankful for the Santa Barbara Mission Conference and the ways that we have, over the years, partnered with them and benefited from amazing teachers and leaders and activators all over the world. And so we're grateful for today and the opportunity to hear what you have been teaching us and how we can take that to the streets uh, here and abroad. Thank you for your love and for this, this food and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Brent, you are on. We're going to hand the mic to everybody on this one, even though you could probably be heard without it because we are recording. And uh, so that will be helpful for us. So those of you listening to this recording... You're just going to have to imagine what you're seeing. <laughs> oh, did I turn it down? Here we go. You, you go from here to dismantle the barriers that exclude. And so to that end, the only way to really do that is to inch our way out to the margins, wherever we are living. Because unless you stand at the margins, they'll never get erased. But once you locate yourself out at them, look under your feet, you'll see that that they're starting to disappear because of where you chose to stand. And so you stand with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless, and you stand with those whose dignity has been denied and those whose burdens are more than they can bear. And every once in a while you have this exquisite privilege to be able to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out, to stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop, and to stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And so we go to the margins 
because no kinship, no peace, no kinship, no justice, no kinship, no equality, no matter how singularly focused we may well be on those worthy goals, they actually can't happen unless there's some undergirding sense that we belong to each other. So I suspect if kinship happened to be our goal, we would no longer be promoting justice, we'd be celebrating it. And so we go to the margins and we brace ourselves because the world will accuse us of wasting our time. The, the prophet Jeremiah says, For in this place of which you say it is a waste, there will be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voices of those who sing. You go to the margins and other voices get heard. Well, I think none of that really makes any sense um, were it not for our kind of expansive and spacious notion of who our God is. You don't go to the margins to make a difference because then it's about you. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make you different and then it's about us. Otherwise, there's distance in service, and service is good, and service is where we begin, but service is the hallway that leads to the ballroom, which is the place of kinship and connection. You want to get to the ballroom. You don't want the distance of service provider, service recipient. I was in uh, Houston once, and after a talk, a guy came up to me who was... Uh, a former gang member tattooed, and now he was working with gangs in the streets of Houston, and he pleaded with me, how do you reach them? And I found myself saying to him, well, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them? And there is no distance that separates the service provider from the service recipient. When you allow yourself to be reached and your heart altered when you go out to the margins. And then you nurture and foster a culture that insists on a community of kinship and a circle of compassion where no one is outside that circle. What do we need to do differently to be in relationship with this generation? Here's the first shift. We need a whole lot less judgment and a whole lot more journeying with. There's a five word phrase that we need to avoid when our, in our relationships with young people. And it's this, when I was your age. <laughs> when I was your age. Because things have changed. Things have changed and that puts us in a posture of lecturing. I so love what Father Boyle said, that the lines between those who are providing services and receiving services, they get blurry. And I would say when it comes to the best radical kinship relationships across generation, the lines get a little blurry. Here's the first age bucket, age 13 to 18. Age 13 to 18, and we call those folks learners. They're learners. They're growing physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. It's a time of rapid growth or learning. Right around age 18, and these age divisions are very fluid, your results may vary. 
So think about the young person that you have in your mind. It might be a little different for them, but typically right around age 18, about high school-ish graduation, that learner transitions into being an explorer. This is from age 19 through 23. Excuse me, 18 through 23. We on purpose had overlap. 18 through 23. An explorer is often leaving home or home-oriented routines for the first time. Could be college, could be military, could be workforce. They're excited about the possibilities that are in front of them, but they're also kind of nervous. That's the explorer, age 18 through 23. Then right around age 23, that explorer transitions into a focuser. A focuser from age 23 to 29. Now this young person has made particular choices about career, about vocation, about relationship, about faith that have opened a lot of doors, but it's also, those cho choices have also closed a lot of doors. And focusers, a lot of them feel good about their decisions, a lot of them have some regret, and a lot of focusers actually feel like they're behind, especially when well-intentioned adults put a lot of pressure on them. So what we want to do is recast teenagers and young adults into more nuanced and actually more accurate categories for today's young people as learners, explorers, focusers. Now, if that's our young people, what does that mean for those of us who are over 30? What kind of parenting, grandparenting, maybe even mentoring does it take to have radical kinship with these types of young people? Well, a learner, what they most need from us is they need us to be a teacher. They need us to be a teacher. If you're parenting, grandparenting, mentoring a high school student, you know that you're doing a lot of teaching. And I want to suggest there's three areas in particular where you want to focus. By the time this young person reaches approximately 18, you want to make sure that you've taught them when it comes to self-reflection, self-discipline, and collaboration. So that's that teacher role, okay? Now, right about, again, when your young person's about age 18, you as a parent or grandparent transition from being a teacher to a guide. From a teacher to being a guide. Now, just like a good guide on a trail or in a neighborhood figures out when do they need to step in and help more and when can they back off a little bit, the arts and science of parenting this age is figuring out when do you need to step in and when can you let them go on their own. I am a mom of a 19 and 17 year old who are both really transitioning from learners to being explorers. And I'm, I'm having some success, but also some struggles in transitioning from being a teacher to being a guide. I'm falling prey to my brother, the same thing my brother and I have said about our mom over the last decades. I am now doing the same thing. I am being overly helpful um, with my young people. So my college freshman, I used to order things for him on Amazon when he was at home. Now when I offer to order something on Amazon, he very, I can tell forcefully but kindly on text, says, no mom, that's okay, I got it covered. <laughs> He's transitioning from being a learner to explore, and so I need to back off. Now we've drawn some dots in this diagram also. The solid dot is the young person, the emptied out dot is the uh, person over 30. You can make of that what you will in terms of how you interpret that. But the teacher is a little bit ahead of the learner. The guide and the explorer, it's far more mutual. And then right around at age 23, when the explorer is becoming a focuser, the guide becomes a resourcer. The guide becomes a resourcer. And what we've heard from parents and grandparents,
interviewed around the country is they feel like um, they're kind of a, a library card catalog waiting for their young person to ask them questions. Some of you are too young to know what a card catalog is, uh, but it's kind of like Google, okay, where you can go and ask questions in the library. And as you see in this diagram, the young person dot is actually a little bit ahead of the parent, grandparent, mentor dot. Because we're trying to respond, as those of us over 30, to the questions of young people. What we've constantly heard from parents and grandparents is it was so much better. It was so much better when the young person asked them a question, asked them for resources, for advice, than then stepping in. So if we're going to have radical kinship, we need to journey with, not judge. So basically, now the rest of our time, different people are kind of also going to do a recap and lead some reflection time of the different speakers. Um, so yeah, just remain engaged and participate if you want to. Sorry, put on me. And then Pat, why don't you come up? And she's going to do kind of a recap reflection on Father Gregory Boyle. Good morning. I think it's still morning. Nope, it's afternoon. <laughs> um, the theme of the conference, Radical Kinship, uh, relates to welcoming the other in our everyday lives. And what, what does that look like in our lives? Um, through keynotes and breakouts, we saw how we can look beyond our comfort zones and reach out and really see the people on the margins. Father Greg Boyle, or Father G, as many call him, exemplifies the life of radical kinship. Through being the pastor of Dolores Missions in Boyle Heights for many years, historically, Boyle Heights is one of the largest LA communities in, um, that includes some of the largest gangs in Los Angeles. <clears throat> he then developed Homeboys Industry, which is a nonprofit agency that started with a commercial bakery and now includes many services, each with their own cost center, which includes full business training. Father Boyle has dedicated his life to living and working in the community that many would fear to go. In each homie, he sees beyond the tattoos, the pain, the drug addiction, anger, hostility, and yes, the crimes committed. What he does do is he looks to the soul of the person within. I've known about the work of Father Boyle for many years. I had worked with youth gangs in my much younger years in the neighborhood, neighboring community of Lincoln Heights and have been inspired by his mission of respectfully providing a future for the men and women who were no longer seen as full uh, citizens within our society. Yes, they truly are on the margins of our communities. I've had the pleasure of hearing him speak two or three different occasions before this conference, but on the first night, I knew that he was saying, uh, speaking to us at a much higher level than I'd ever heard him speak before. I explained to a friend of his father Boyle on steroids. It didn't take too long for me to figure out the difference. The other times I'd heard him speak was at college campuses or like gatherings. His message has always been clear, 
He's a teacher through stories that grab you. They're not meant to entertain, but they're, help, they're said and told to see so that you can see the power of the true person within. And yes, there's always a punchline with Dr. G's stories. However, on this Friday night, he was speaking to congregations, people of faith who were looking to expand and develop a ministry in radical kinship. He was speaking to us. And on both Friday night and Saturday afternoon, he spoke clearly about our role in ministry through seeing the person where he or she is and giving that person the respect and truly listening to them and giving them the opportunity to find their own way. He sees ministry not as preaching at someone, but giving that person the opportunity of enriching and growing through living examples of love. For many, that never comes. But for others, it provides hope and a future. His work is not easy, and it's not without pain. He shared that he recently buried his 250th homery. A major part of Boyle's Day, Father Boyle's Day, is riding his bike through the projects, knowing his neighbors by name, and being willing to stop and listen. He also spends hours in his glass-walled office with the doors wide open so all can come in and talk. He speaks out on injustice and is known throughout his community and the region for his knowledge and ability to tell it as it is. When he's asked to speak to groups, he always brings one or more homies with him so that they can tell their story and how having the chance to be welcomed and given training and a job helps them grow into a new life. This doesn't come easily, nor does it come quickly, but it comes for those that are really ready to make a change in their future. And for others, it's a long, ongoing journey. Saturday at the conference, we met Jonathan. Jonathan is in his early 20s. He's only been out of prison for 90 days, and he was starting on the training program at Homeboys. In his life, he had been in prison for 10 of his 22 or 23 years. Father Boyle had regularly visited him in prison, as he does with many of the locals who are serving time. When Jonathan got out, he knew that, he had, that his only chance of breaking that cycle was to go to Father G and get help. Jonathan did not sugarcoat his life, the pain he'd experienced. It was real. Nor did he excuse his actions, but he wanted to change. He explained that his world going that in his world, going to juvie equated to high school. Going to prison equated to college. It was the only path that he and others saw for themselves. Now he has a new path and the opportunity for a new future. But it will not be an easy path but it will be one with support. There are many forces that will try to have him turn back to the world he has always known. But the path is there, and the love and the support is there as well. It's important to understand that kids growing up in these projects have few mentors, and they have very little support. Their future is gangs, <coughs> crime, and a life on society's margins. Without strong support to break the cycle of their known world, 
They follow their older siblings, neighbors, and others to the paths that they see. It's the only path they see. This expectation of life is where too many say they belong. I've read a lot of studies on resiliency. It's something that fascinates me. And we find that those that are able to break the cycle of expectations of the community, in other words, the life of crime, um, they, and they see that as their only expectation for themselves. It takes the presence of someone that truly believes in them and hangs in there through their highs and lows. Too many of our world see those children as ones with very low expectations and all around them. With all the struggles they experience at home and their neighborhoods, the acceptance and respect that Father G and others at Homeboys sees in the individual is totally a new concept. One of Father Boyle's stories was when he was interviewing a prospective volunteer for Homeboys Enterprise, the woman told him that she couldn't wait to come to volunteer so she could help fix them. <laughs> he kindly told her that this was not their mission. And after explaining their role, at her, their role at Homeboys, she did not return. One of the many services that Homeboys provides to the community is the largest medical tattoo removal in the country. Removing tats, especially gang-related tats, can be vital to the individuals moving forward in their goals, as well as helping break the cycle of gang identity. But I also wonder if it isn't a mission for us to really look at the person beyond those tats and to see the person's core of who they are and who they want to become. Father Boyle provided lasting lessons for us as Christians to reach out and include the other. By giving that person the time to build trust, by listening and not lecturing, by living side by side with us in our journey, God does not categorize people or label them, but it is far too hard for us to reach out to the margins and not be labelers. Father Boyle reminded me of one of my favorite statements by 16th century St. Teresa of Avila. We put God into a jar as to who he is and who he's there for. Of course, people like us. May we break our jar and see the true breath of God who is here for us all. We are meant to live in a world of radical kinship, but not without the inner challenges of our comfort level and truly living our faith. Um, I had the pleasure of listening to Kara Powell, who you saw in here. How many people were actually at the conference? Quite a few of you. And how many of you weekly are engaged with 13 to 24-year-olds? At least weekly. Okay. So pretty good representation. Um, I really appreciated the fact that Kara was there to talk about reaching out across these generational boundaries. Um, uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of the introduction that she gave before what you saw in the video. Um, first of all, Kara Powell is the, has her PhD and is the executive director of the Fuller Youth Institute at Fuller Seminary. 
she does all of her research on youth. And um, so all of her findings are the result of her team team's research. Um, she introduced all of what we saw as by saying that 14 is the new 24. That 14-year-olds um, today know and have experienced what 24-year-olds had maybe a generation ago. Um, she also said that 20% of teens, 20% will say that they worry regularly on a daily basis, but only 8% of the parents are aware that that's what's going on. Um, later, she talked about the rates of anxiety, and I'll give you some of her tips for that. Um, as much as the young people, 14, early teens, are uh, experiencing life earlier than I did a generation ago, um, on the other hand, they are waiting five years later to get married, to have kids, to finish college. And so in some ways, 28 is the new 18. So they're actually having this longer period of time of transitioning from being a young person to being an adult in terms of our um, societal expectations and their independence. Um, so that was sort of the framework that she put in place um, before she talked about the uh, different categories of age groups, which I found very helpful. I have um, a 13-year-old and a t almost 24-year-old. and. 17 and 19 in between. <laughs> so I have all ranges of those kids, and it was helpful. And I thought um, one of the things that she mentioned in passing, um, this idea that at, when you're teaching the 13 to 18-year-olds that what they found made successful teens that launched um, was that idea that they'd been taught um, self-reflection and self-discipline and collaboration. I, I thought that was very useful for me as a parent um, to think about because um, I think we're busy teaching them to avoid this and do that and whatever. Um, but those are the key traits that the kids found that they needed to be able to be successful as independent um, adults later. And especially that self-reflection piece, I think we tend to teach them make your bed, um, clean up after yourself, be um, organized, things like that. But the um, the self-discipline to do those things themselves rather than coming from you, and then the self-reflection to be able to identify their own emotional health. Um, I, I was very challenged by that in thinking about maybe some of the ways that I could have been a better parent earlier with my older kids, um, but just wanting to make sure that I'm teaching them how to um, think about themselves when they're having a hard time and where do you go and what do you do when you have those feelings and um, why do you think you're feeling that and um, those kind of conversations sometimes are particularly hard with parents so as I look out at you who might not be parents of that age group um, that can be helpful um, roles as grandparents as mentors um, to help step in and have some of those conversations with other people that might be charged with the parent um, so um, she is, Kara Powell is also really known for her Sticky Faith um, research, which uh, she wrote a book called Sticky Faith and looking at um, what characteristics of churches have that when the youth leave the church, whether or not, or leave high school, do they stay involved in church? And um, whether at that church or someplace else. And the kids whose faith sticks um, had 
at least five adults for every kid that was invested in them. Um, it, you know, attending um, basketball games, uh, you know, asking how the test went, knowing their name, engaging with them, um, showing up for them. I don't know if I don't know if anybody ever watched that. Uh, there was a show called Parenthood, and yeah. <laughs> if you were into that show, there was this great time when they um, one of the kids in the family adopted this kid, and when he was playing baseball, like the entire extended family would come out, and there were like forty people in the bleachers cheering for this one kid. And <laughs> I just thought it was such a great yeah. picture, kind of, of what she was talking about. And I appreciate that Doug, knowing about CARES research, does recruit all ages to help with youth ministry here and um, to engage with kids um, and be those five people for each student. Um, and that my children has made a difference. And I do see them um, doubting less and having less anxiety because there are lots of people that know them that are here. Um, so I'm thankful for that personally. Um, in addition to saying less judgment, Kara also talked about um, having less denial and more openness to doubt. 70% mm -hmm. um, of youth will admit that they have doubts um, when they're surveyed and um, they don't know where a safe place is to talk about those things a lot of the time. Um, she said, doubt isn't toxic to faith, but silence is. Um, so I thought that was really helpful to think about. And she had a couple of good ex um, questions to ask as you're dealing, working with youth. She said, what do you no longer believe that you think I still believe? So if you're in relationship with a young person, that could be a provocative question to ask them. Yeah, sure. Um, what do you no longer believe that you think I still believe? And another one is sort of rephrasing it a different way. What do you now believe that you think that I don't believe? And so those are, could be engaging conversation questions to ask with, um, with students and young people. Um, and the third thing, so she said less judgment, less denial, more openness to doubt, and then less silence about uh, anxiety and more empowering empathy. So um, anxiety, I'm not sure you're aware, I work in a school and anxiety is incredibly on the rise. And I'm not talking about like, oh, I feel anxious. I'm talking about full on panic attacks in students at school. I, I work at a very small school. We only have 120 kids. We're only there two days a week. It's a very safe environment. And I've had to deal with five different students in the last two years have complete panic attacks at school. Um, so I can only imagine what it's like when you're at an 800 person high school and you're there every day, all day with your peers. Um, the level of anxiety among um, teenagers is just what used to be depression and drug use is now almost all shifted towards anxiety. Um, so the, she gave the ABCDE of anxiety. <laughs> she said A, uh, Ask, can you rate your anxiety on a one to 10? 10 being the worst. And she said about six, you need to get intervention, professional help for that student. Um, she said B is breathe, to teach them about mindfulness and being able to just breathe. 
Yeah, like, and she had us all. Let's all take a deep breath. In fact, let's do it right now. And you can just feel some of that tension release. And sometimes it's, now this doesn't work for everyone. Let me tell you, I've tried that with kids. And if they're in the full on panic attack, sometimes that makes them angry. So if they make just, you need to be a calm, safe presence for people. And so um, that breathing maybe is a tool that works and maybe it doesn't, but you can't be thrown off your game if it doesn't. Teaching children, and uh, especially in that teaching age, to the C is center on a helpful truth or phrase. So helping them to think of something that's true and that they can repeat to themselves, whether it's a verse or something that they know that I can do this, this only lasts 10 minutes, whatever it is that they can get through the thing that is um, feeling overwhelming. Um, D is develop your team making sure you again have those five people for each kid, coaches, pastors, parents, um, therapists, (coughs) family, friends, grandparents. You could be that team for some people in your life. Um, And then the E was empower empathy. And uh, she uses this phrase with her kids that I thought was good, that when they come and they're like overwhelmed, she says, that stinks. And I think you can handle it. (laughs) And I like the fact that she was giving a positive message to them, because I think too often um, part of the transition is we want to go in and save them from it and um, protect them from the difficulty rather than believing in them that they'll be able to uh, handle it. So those were the notes that I had about her presentation. I did want to ask a few questions of you guys. When you hear all this, what surprises you most about hearing about the changes for teens? Well, that they seem to mature faster, but they never seem to get to maturity as quick. Yeah, so that they mature faster, but independence is later. Yeah. Anything else that you found surprising? I was was just this minute reflecting on on watching my own children raise their children and um, I was a single parent, you know, and for the most part they turned out pretty well, but discipline was huge. You know, where are you going? Who are you going to be with? What time will you be home? Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. I think I think a lot of parents are afraid of disciplining their children. I think you're afraid of your kids. Hmm. Um, I don't know that for a fact because I only have my own little nuclear, you know, family, my kids and their and their kids. But um, I've noticed it in some of the parenting of friends of my grandkids. So there's a you're noticing a parenting yeah, change you, that you is know, less disciplined. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, so, you know, I don't mean to sound like Prussian or, you know, <laughs> I'm, because I'm not, but the discipline administered um, with love, you know, it's not like, well, I'm going to, I want you to do this for your own good, that, no, <laughs> but please do this because. So how do you think help. that fits in with her, um, 
per age groups. So she had learners from 13 to 18, explorers from 18 to 23, and focuser from 23 to 29. Yeah. So that, um, that discipline that you're talking about is, she, I think, would call it being a teacher and exactly. coming alongside yeah. and... Yeah. I, that sounds better than... <laughs> 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 no, no, I think there's, right. there's a place, I think, in, in having consequences that you create well, that... Yeah. Um, I mean, teachers have to... Um, correct papers and yeah. provide discipline. I think something that surprised me, which sounds kind of silly, but the whole theme of the conference was radical kinship. Mm -hmm. And then Kara Powell, I was kind of like, oh, how is that going to relate? But to think of uh, cross-generational friendships and relationships as radical kinship was powerful for me. Because before that, I didn't really think that is kind of different than what society does. Um, and there are also challenges that come with that. Mm -hmm. So it's just helpful even to frame it as like, we need skills, we need tools to be able to even have these relationships. And it is radical, so that was just surprising. I had the same um, sort of surprise, and then I had another jump this morning when we were looking at our strategic plan for our church, um, which one of our goals as a church is to empower all members towards mentor mentorship. And um, I just thought, like, how can we implement some of these ideas where you're where you don't, might not need to be a teacher if you don't want to be with the teens, but you could be a guide, be somebody who's available um, for the young. 19 to 23 college age students so that when they have questions you could be somebody they could talk to or then a resourcer um, you know yeah. and I just want to say how thrilled I was at the mission conference to be there with so many of our church people and for you to hear the youth ministry world part because you're a part of that very mm -hmm. much a part of that and uh, especially across the generations and I was thinking about uh I've done a lot of uh, leadership and guidance with smaller church youth ministries, and the beauty of a smaller church is that I grew up in a smaller church. I'm a product of a, you know hundred or less people. I did get to know all the generations, and I got to get into leadership a little earlier as a kid mm -hmm. in the church, and I got to benefit from all that. And so I'm just grateful for the mission conference for everybody to hear this because you may maybe you only see a teenager or a child at church. Just smile at them be there for that you're part of their net mm -hmm. and so we're all in this together that's that. great yeah yeah well i'm really excited because i worked with teenagers uh, long long ago in the 80s and i was implementing a lot of non-educational subjects really teaching life wisdom type of thing but there wasn't, uh, there weren't resources. The teachers were even a little threatened by what I was teaching because I would come in from the outside. And yet that is what makes the biggest difference because when I was a teenager, I was just trying to apply the things that I felt I needed that I never had mm -hmm. when I went to talk to high school kids. But everybody thought that was not part of Ooh. Right. And the parents would leave it also of, of their friends. They just raised their kids more or less the way they were raised. Right. So the fact that there is a, more of a, a naming and an awareness and resources, 
All I wanted to do was get a recording of what you did. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and that goes back to some of that teaching them, uh, teaching them how about self-reflection, self-discipline, collaboration. Those things aren't always taught at school or at home, and so that's a place where we, as the church, could step in mm-hmm. and have an opportunity to make a difference in the next generation. Yeah, I remember when the whole. Um, slogan was about sex just say no and I thought when I was a teenager just say no wasn't what I needed I needed to know how do you get through that dialogue so I would set up times where we would practice Mm -hmm. being in the back of the car (laughs) with a boyfriend or whatever (laughs) and what would you actually say? Yeah. Right, and that's the difference between like you know lecturing at somebody versus listening to them and um, what she's and journeying with kids rather than thinking you know it all. Did anybody else have any insights that they wanted to share about what they if they heard Kira? Well, I, I just really quickly want to share that I um, was fortunate to uh, work in the sheriff's treatment. Oh wow! Day reporting center for for uh, ex felons. Uh huh. I was there for I think almost four years as the employment counselor, and of course because it was state sponsored and county sponsored, we couldn't um, have prayer. I mean, we it was, and it seemed like you know such a so many of them would have liked it. Right. Um, coming from the prisons, they had in in preparation for being released, they had <coughs> chapels. So anyway, I thought that was kind of sad, and um, I would kind of sneak it in <laughs> when we were when we were in a room by ourselves discussing what their job goals were and what they were doing about it and so forth. I would say that's all great. That's a good reminder that yeah. with the when yeah. we are working across generations, the power of prayer. Because in many of these, and, I, and that's why Homeboy is probably they, they were, because that's private. It's not sanctioned by the state or the right. You know, there, they can uh, do prayer, but we are a Judeo-Christian culture, and so much of that is being pushed away now. I think, and true in the school. Well, there's separation of church and state, which is why. <laughs> um, so anybody else about Kara Powell before I, we move on to general? I think, are you going to do a question? All right. Thank you. Brent is going to talk about a breakout session. Okay, great. Thank you. I just wanted to say one thing about Father Boyle's presentations is when I was Growing up, I always wanted to be in the NBA, but clearly that wasn't going to work out. But after watching his the, the stories that he told, service would have appealed to me much more because the richness of his life through service was just incredible. So from a selfish standpoint in watching it, that really struck me was just how rich a life of service can be as a provider of service. So I just want to throw that out. Um, I've had the great good fortune of videotaping the conference for five years now. I get paid to go there. 
So I would encourage you to go and watch the videos. This year's sessions were particularly powerful and they do dovetail beautifully that cross-generational radical kinship. And that was, because I, I asked, was that, I mean, she was really quick on her feet. And he goes, no, she's been thinking about that for six months. So they really did a beautiful job of bringing Boyle's work and hers together. Um, so I'm going to talk for a couple minutes of, about um, one of Kara Powell's associates uh, who presented on the issues facing people in the third in their third decade of life in their 20s. So he talked about uh, the maturity of faith and how doubt plays a role in that, um, <coughs> finding community, and he drove home the importance of the act of asking for forgiveness and giving forgiveness inside that community, oftentimes when people are in their 20s. And then finally, uh, the big question, what am I going to do with my life and how that third decade is meant to be preparing them for the rest of their life. So um, his contention, Steve argues, contention was that faith is a verb rather than a noun. So you're faithing and you don't lose your faith, but you transition through faith. And, and doubt is, we often encounter it in our 20s because for the many times for the first times in our lives we come up against something that is is bigger than our faith at that moment because we've had an intellectual faith we've been taught at church but we haven't been challenged so often the result is that faith has to grow to meet that challenge or it sloughs off in response and then failure to grow and I, one of my best friends I always think of Janie when I consider this concept. She had a, her husband died of cancer at a young age and the church that she went to, they were asking the question of what sins did he commit to die to, to kill him? And she hates God to this day and that her faith in that community wasn't mature enough to deal with that. I mean that's an extreme example but that's a case where faith has to grow to meet meet the, the situation. Um, and that then comes into forgiveness later on. Um, let's see. My, my notes are like my home office. Lisa had to leave. She would validate that. That's true. So bear with me while I, while I go through this. Um, yeah, in their 20s, it's no longer about learning the information. It's about integrating spirituality into your life. Uh, one thing about doubt is that Young people are terrified of expressing the doubt to the people in their lives for fear of being, being put on the prayer list. <laughs> so one of the things that he said is, and it's true, I mean, I, I, it was like watching my life as he's talking through this. And so his point was that doubt, doubt is going to happen and we need to provide an opportunity for people to dialogue through that because what kids are most fearful of is expressing doubt and then losing relationship as a result. Mm -hmm. So often we, you know, say they walk away from the church. They're not necessarily doing that. They're looking for a community where those doubts can be openly expressed and worked through. And Kara Powell, she brought up something that dovetails into that. She, she told a story of a young guy who went to his minister with some questions, and the minister kind of cut him off and this young guy never went back to church. He was like 12 or 13 years old, and it was Steve Jobs. And her point was, what if Steve Jobs had been encouraged at the faith 
in, in the faith at age 12 or 13, what a powerful influence he might have been. So it was, it was the fact that um, those doubts weren't honored and, and worked through together. So it's, let's see. Uh, another thing that we're afraid of as a church is doubt is contagious. If someone expresses their doubts to us, it may open our doubts up. So we don't, we shouldn't be fearful of it. We need to be aware of it and we shouldn't shut those questions down. Uh, we're, young people are not alone in questioning. The struggle is normal and even necessary to grow. Uh, somebody said we want young people's faith to grow, but we don't want it to change. <laughs> and uh, kind of how oxymoronic is that? Um, he said, you know, with a caveat, he said, leaving the church but finding a community in some cases is not a bad thing as long as you find, as long as that young person finds um, people that they can dialogue with that, and actually grow. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, young people experience their doubts more deeply because it's the first time they've come up against those circumstances. And he also said something that was interesting. He said, churches are filled with good news. We have what, the, we're the only institution that's set up to nurture people throughout their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And we need to leverage that. Um, and I'm probably out of time. Out of time. I can keep going? Oh, that's too bad. Okay, no, no, forgiveness. Um, another part, another part of the sticky faith thing is is that oftentimes we wrong other people in the church. I mean, things are said or or offenses are made. And, and we need, or the young people need to learn to ask for forgiveness and grant it. And if it may not always lead to reconciliation, but we know that that leads to um, a freedom. And that those un, unaddressed wrongs are a big cause of people walking away. So we as a community can, should be aware of that and proactive in, in making it easy for people to, to come and correct that. Um, and then the last thing is, in in your twenties, uh, you're you're finding your way in the world, and he's and you're beginning to acknowledge your gifts. He said one thing that's really difficult, though, for young people is to verbalize the gifts that they have. It's much easier for them to talk about the perceived strengths of other people, and I'm the poster child for that. I grew up, you know, be seen and not heard, and that. So I had a really hard time of verbalizing. He said, you should give your gifts um, as if your life depended upon it. And don't, young people don't need to seek perfection, but they need to practice their gifts and set themselves up through their 20s for the rest of their life's work. And again, I would encourage you to, to go and watch the videos. It was a particularly good, good conference. Yep. Awesome. So thank you everyone who took the time to really reflect um, and share with us what you took away from the conference. And now I want to introduce a time of discussion. Oh. The question was, where, where can we see the videos? Oh, where can you see the Santa videos? Santa Barbara Mission Conference. Santa Barbara Mission Conference. Dot com. SB. 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 Mission Conference. Dot org. Dot org.
Downward, yeah. So um, I just want to enter into a time of discussion and reflection. And so I'm going to ask that the people who uh, were at the mission conference kind of pipe up and speak up. Um, and then people who weren't at the mission conference, you can kind of pay attention and see what they learned as you continue to reflect on what uh, you learned today as well. So first question, uh, what was most meaningful for you um, at the mission conference? And if you just want to kind of share with us what was most meaningful and why, or even if you were reintroduced to the idea today. Janie? run by students who are were in prison and they're getting out of uh, the juvenile um, probation system and they're taking them from the juvenile probation system into um, the work of putting on everything about a restaurant in San Francisco and it's now and it's I don't know how many years and it's very very um, popular and it's doing really well. But what I loved was her story of faith where she just walked. She goes, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And she really, you know, she'd had a dream. And anyway, the Lord kind of showed her this little path and step by step, she took that little path. And I, it just was so encouraging to see this, to hear the end result after, I don't know, 10, 15 years. She's working in um, prison in prison work, and then it, she got taken out of that, and now she's doing the work of hope, bringing these people to Jesus as well as giving them um, livelihood. So I just was very inspired by that. That's amazing. Thanks, Jamie. No one. I'm going to go really fast. What I found most meaningful was when Father G talked about. Um, reducing the distance between like the service provider and then the person being served um, and just so many times I, I came from the nonprofit world which which is great but it is really about creating distance between you the service provider and the person being served but in God's church in the family of God we're not really supposed to put up that distance we are supposed to reduce the distance between one another um so that was just really encouraging for me even as a pastor or as someone just as a faithful person what am i doing to continue to reduce the distance between myself and other people um and that was really powerful for me go well <clears throat> it was a great great conference and uh the, the one thing that I um, liked about it that reinforced is that that uh, the serve this person serving is getting more out of it than the person we're serving. I know, and um, and I, I I see that, and uh, I do the the, the uh, uh, Bible study at at the prison at the, the county jail. Among uh, uh, Spanish speakers, and, and uh, I see that all the time, and, and it's uh, it, it's amazing. You, you you give them the opportunity to to speak, you know, and uh, and 
see, see how they see uh, the scripture that we're, that we're reading and what, it, what does it mean for them. And it's, it's amazing, you know, uh, wh what, they're, what they're coming up with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyone else, um, what struck you as most meaningful? And if not that, what was most challenging for you? Um, in what ways were you challenged or convicted? Love to hear. I know I talked about Kara, but I didn't get to talk about Greg. But <laughs> <laughs> um, he had one of the homeboys there, and he um, shared that his whole life growing up in the poor neighborhood where he was, um, he said, we're used to being watched. We're not used to being seen. Mm -hmm. And I was so challenged by that because I work at a school and it's easy just to watch the kids at lunch and recess um, and make sure they're safe and not actually see them and engage with them. So mm -hmm. I found that really challenging. <clears throat> and feel free to, if other answers to the first two questions come to you, feel free to share. But the last question I kind of want us to consider and anyone can answer, but what fresh vision or action might God be calling you to? Um, so I say vision because kind of how I shared my vision changed, that I want to reduce the distance between me and other people. So did something in your vision change or um, is there an action that you want to step into or that you feel like God might be calling you to step into? Well, I don't think he's calling me at 87. Could be, never too old. But one of the things that I'm hearing from the back of all of this is that affluent teenagers have also tremendous struggles we can recognize it in the poor community, but we don't think how um, difficult and destructive the other end is. So I think that's been part of the drug addiction and so much of their feeling of lack, they're still filling with other things. Obviously, the poor have a bigger hill to climb, but psychologically and, and faith-wise, I think those kids who are on the other end feel entitled also and suffer a lot maybe from uh, what do you have to do to enter the kingdom of God, yeah. to give up all the affluence, yeah. at least the, the mental mindset. Okay. Thanks, Grace. Another statement that Kara Powell made was, warm is the new cool. Because uh, often when I'm talking to youth leaders, uh, they were always kind of worried, well, how's a teenager perceiving me? Or, and it would be true of us at any age. You know, how's a young adult perceiving me? How's a child? And her statement, I really think, goes across both of these categories. What Pat shared, what Sandy shared about the warm really warm when we communicate warmth to other people that they're welcome at the table we're kind and respectful and see them 
that's what that's what everybody around the world of all cultures and nations and ages are looking for and uh, so how how are we communicating that that's the, the important piece because uh, in study of even like classroom management for teachers who have over 120 kids a day in the high school setting if they could just communicate that I see you my kindness and my respect is there for you that students will feel love so it sounds easier than it is but it's still really is it just a key piece listening and loving people along that uh, Greg Boyle at one point he was telling a story about the homies doing a service and uh, somebody was reading the scripture and they said oh you oh god you are exhausted but then Greg wove that through the whole yeah, uh, talk about god exhausting himself to love us mm -hmm. and that love that we give to others has to come from that love that God is exhausting himself poured out for us. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, we serve an exhausted God who tires himself out giving generously to his kids. Mm -hmm. And then the next night he said, receive the tender glance and then be the tender glance in the world. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Oh, sorry, I just think that one of the things that I came away with uh, with Father G was that slow us down. Mm -hmm. That we're, we come in and we are, if we're volunteering whatever it is that we're doing, I spend a lot of time at Transition House. I'm usually running from place to place and, um, and I'm sure teachers feel the same way and I certainly have in, in my career in social services. Um, but slowing ourselves down through eye contact um, and it's not about us, it's not about them, it's right. about all of us on our mutual journey. Mm -hmm. And so if we see this as, I'm doing this for someone, then it, it really is an ego thing. Yeah. Um, uh, but if we're doing it with someone, um, that I'm growing at the same time that person is. But that takes, the Sandy said deep breathing, <laughs> um, but it, it takes deep breathing for a person with anxiety issues, but it also takes deep breathing for all of us um, through eye contact and listening takes time. <laughs> and too often, I know for myself that I feel like I've got to do this, this, and this, and rather than taking the opportunity of just sitting down and listening. Mm -hmm. That's good word. <coughs> So, you know, there's that 
obvious opportunity, but can we even do that? Mm-hmm. I just briefly, I think yeah. just the conference just changes, changed my perspective and challenged me that where I am, do have contacts where I am in different places, that I recognize those places more, way, way, way more importantly than I ever did before. Mm. So lots of little people, of older people, people of different places. So just perspectives change, realizing God's there. Yeah, love that. Well, thank you everyone for sharing and for going to the mission conference and my prayer is that we continue to reflect on it. We continue to try to embody what we learned um, because there's a lot of wisdom that was shared and it's amazing that we get to team up and do that work together. Um, So praise God for that. Sandy, could you come up and just pray us out? Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, our exhausted God. Thank you that you pour yourself out, that you poured yourself out in your son, Jesus, that you continue to pour out your spirit in love, in wanting to close the distance as we run away. And thank you that you delight in us. And I pray that we would turn and fully receive your presence, which is the greatest gift of all. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.